chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 3. This is uh, also the first entry in, in a couple sermons that we're calling Christmas letters. Uh, that is, uh, we're going to be meditating a little bit more on the themes that are covered in the morning service, uh, finding what we found in the, in the Gospels are actually explored even more uh, in the letters that come later in the New Testament. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at something very similar to what we looked at this morning. Uh, but I hope that in doing so that we further unpack and, and dive a little bit deeper into the truths that we saw there. And so tonight it's my joy to open with you Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 3, this is the word of our God. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those that, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So far, God's word. Let's ask his blessing on us now. O God of light, we confess to you this evening that we do need your light as we approach your word. By nature, our minds are darkened and our hearts are hardened against your truth. And yet we know the promises that, that you have made in Christ regarding your spirit. Lord, that, that by your spirit you will illumine our minds, soften our hearts, that your, your word might be planted deep within and, and bear much fruit. So we pray, Lord, do your work through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of your name. And we pray these things in the merits of Christ. Amen. Many of us are in the holiday mode now, right? You're not just buying presents. Some of you are, are a little, maybe a little behind and just now buying tickets to fly to that place uh, that you're going to enjoy for the holidays, either time with family or time away from the drama. One way or another, you're looking at tickets. Maybe you've already gotten them, maybe not. Maybe you've been hesitant. Maybe because flying's not quite your favorite. Well, you would be like 25 million other Americans who have a fear of flying. Maybe you wouldn't say it's outright fear, but uh, it does give your tummy a little trouble when you think about what it's going to take to get you up into the air and fly so far away. Many major airlines have keyed into this fear as well. They know that this is something many Americans experience, 
And so they've begun to offer fear of flying classes. From what I can tell, these usually entail a, a, a seasoned pilot, usually with a comforting voice, from the airline explaining how planes fly in great depth, pouring over details of, of the, the regulations required in the flight industry and, and many of the requirements they have to do as, as pilots, and, and even examining the number of statistics of how truly safe it is to fly. The thought is that by having a credible, confident pilot take a close look at flying, it would instill confidence in those who are afraid, and that those who are afraid might become regular flyers, preferably on their airline as well. A close examination of the details so that someone might be emboldened in how they live. God is doing something similar in our passage tonight. Romans is, is this incredible letter, and Romans 8 is perhaps the greatest storehouses of, storehouse of riches in the whole letter. Paul has labored so far in Romans 1 through 7 to describe the depths of our sin, but also he's begun to scale the heights of the grace of God available in Jesus Christ to sinners such as us. And this leads to incredible words of verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These words, no condemnation, ring all throughout this chapter. And as Paul describes the, the means, uh, that, that this is the means by which God saves sinners. As we step into verse 3, Paul slows down to describe how that no condemnation came for the believer. What we learn is that we receive no condemnation in Christ by the application, by the Spirit's application of the Son's accomplishment. We receive salvation by the Spirit's application of the Son's accomplishment. But just as with the fear of flying class, God's intention in walking us through the intimate details of salvation, how it works, he doesn't just want us to add to the growing list of things that we know, the information that we can add into our mind. It's, it's not meant to merely stimulate us intellectually. It's not just some cool intellectual exercise it's meant to be acted upon, to be lived in. We are meant to move from fear to flight, from fear of condemnation to joy and obedience to God. In order to bring all of these pieces together, we need to consider first, in, in verse 3, what the Son actually accomplished. Look with me at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. We read in verse 3 that God sent the Son. Now this is, this is ABC's Christianity, right? This, 
This is something that, that is so foundational that, that even those who have, who have little exposure to the church, they know this. But Paul gives us so much depth. The son was on a mission from the father to accomplish something. It's not that the, the son just happened to show up. He's on mission. And what was that mission? He, was, he came to accomplish What does Paul say? What the law could not do. What was impossible according to the law. Now this would have been shocking to some of the original hearers of this letter. The law is the revelation of the perfect will of the perfect God. It is His holy and righteous standard. The giving of the law in the book of Exodus was was a bit of a high point in the Old Testament to say the least. What was it that this incredible law of God could not do? Paul tells us back in Romans 3.20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. To, To rephrase that a little bit, the law could not secure right standing with God for any person. No one could stand before God and say, God, I deserve to be in your presence. God, I deserve your love because I have obeyed the law perfectly. The law cannot do that. It cannot provide that. A person could not look, at, look to, the wall, to the law and say, this is the way that I will please God. People tried. People did maybe consciously think that, but deep down, what we know is that the law cannot justify it, cannot give us right standing. And this feels a bit weird because isn't the law, this God's standard, God calls his people to? The key is in the rest of Romans 3. We, we read, for by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is the holy standard of, of conduct God calls human beings to live according to. And yet the law reveals that all have fallen short. All are sinners. As soon as we begin to look at the law as a way to, to provide right standing with God, we realize we can't do it. We can't do it. The the The... The heinousness of sin is that we try to convince ourselves we can. The issue is not the law, for the law is holy. The issue is our fallen flesh, our sinfulness. That's why in 8.3 Paul says the law was weakened by the flesh. The law's ability to aid in holiness of a mere human was lost because of our sin. So the son was sent to accomplish the, the righteous standard that, that was lost because of our sin. And how did this happen? How did, how did he do this? Well, we read that the father sent the son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is to say, the son took on a true human nature in this fallen world, in this fallen age. Or in other words, the the very things that we celebrate around this time at Christmas. The son took on a human 
nature, a true human nature, body and soul. Notice Paul says it's in the likeness of sinful flesh, but it, he himself was not sinful. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is like us, and yet he's unlike us. He is like us in our nature, except he has no sin. So God continues to do what is impossible for man to accomplish the law by becoming a man. Mystery of mysteries that God would take on flesh. How does the Son accomplish the law? He he takes on flesh. We should see this as as Christmas, but also the entirety of Jesus' life. Of fulfilling the law. Do we read, uh, uh, is it, but is it because the Son took flesh? Is it because of Christmas He fulfilled the law completely? No, we read that God condemns sin in the flesh. That's, that's the very end there of verse 3. That didn't happen. God did not condemn sin in the flesh when when the son was conceived in the womb of Mary, the story that we read about this morning. No, the condemnation of of sin in the flesh happened at the cross. As Paul testified earlier in chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. From his very conception, Christ was on a mission to accomplish righteousness of the law that he ultimately fulfilled by being crucified in place of his people on the cross. Let me ask you, how often do you slow down and consider the incredible, impossible accomplishment of the Son? He was condemned so that we wouldn't be. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Let's not let the commercialism or the sentimentality of of Christmas lead us to consider, uh, block us out from considering the most marvelous gift of all, and that that to us a son was given who might accomplish what we never could. Remember that the manger was always meant to lead to the cross. It must always be that way in our hearts, that, that, that Christmas is about Jesus coming to save sinners such as us. The incredible nature of what God has done in the son cannot be overestimated. And yet, as miraculous as this work is, as incredible as what the Son has accomplished for his people, it is useless to us unless that work is brought into us. 
It's a bit like receiving a, a new handheld video game system but not having any batteries. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe a spouse bought you a, a, a new car but not, it doesn't give you the keys. It's there, it's there, but you can't get into it. You can't enjoy it. Is it really yours? As long as the work of Christ is outside of us, it's of no use to us. And that might be a little bit shocking, but I'm really just paraphrasing John Calvin here, who at the beginning of book three of his institute says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and, uh, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to, for us. It's for that reason Calvin concludes, therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. In order for what the Son accomplished to be ours, it had to be applied by Christ's Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit. Paul brings this this into view in verse 4 when he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are the beneficiaries of Christ's work, those who walk by the Spirit. It is the, the Son's Spirit that brings all of the gifts All of the graces that are available in Christ's accomplishment of salvation and brings it into our hearts and works us within us. It's by the indwelling spirit that we enjoy the salvation that Jesus accomplished so long ago. As Paul will say in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Christ, after being crucified, ascended into heaven that he might pour out the Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Trinity, in us that we might be of the Spirit, that we might walk in the Spirit. We get the one gift, and we needed the second gift to make that first gift ours. Paul describes what exactly the Spirit is doing in applying that accomplished salvation in our hearts in verses 5 through 8 by, by setting up a contrast, a contrast between the flesh That is the sinful way that we lived before salvation and life in the Spirit. That is life once the Spirit is poured into our hearts and and salvation is applied in our lives. And he describes it as two fundamentally different mindsets. Mindsets that are, are complete contrast, black and white, night and day. Two different hearts that could be beating within us, that move us, and it's only these two kinds of hearts. There is the natural heart, the, the, the sinful fleshly heart, which is set on what the sinful flesh wants, and the supernatural heart that is planted within us by the Spirit 
that desires what the Spirit desires. Look first at, at life in the flesh. We read, we read that the flesh is hostile to God. The opposition of Adam that was in his heart when he sinned is still operational in their life. That's who we are by nature. I've heard it said by, by one pastor that born within every person is a God-hating heart, a Christ-crucifying heart. That's who we are by nature. Do you believe that? We tend to, to downplay that, but, but that's the testimony of Scripture again and again. We are either of the flesh or of the Spirit. We see also that the flesh refuses to submit to God's law, which again makes sense if, if we are in opposition to God. Those who are, who are in the flesh do not want to submit to God's law, and they cannot submit to God. It is impossible because at their core is the God-hating heart, the heart that says no to God. Because of this opposition, they cannot live in a way that pleases God. Again, that, that makes sense. Our hearts hate God. We refuse to submit to what his holy law reveals. And because of that, we cannot live in a way that pleases God. His displeasure is always upon them because everything they do is done to push against him not to lean into him. They are dead. And as Paul says, this way of life, this mindset leads to true, full death. This is not the no condemnation life. This is condemnation life. This is the condemnation of God working within them. Apart from the work of the Spirit, this is the default mode of every single person. Apart from the work of the Spirit, this is everyone, including you and me. This is our default. And yet we see there is this other option set in contrast, the light to the dark. That what's seen as negative is seen as the positive now, as life in the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to be submissive to God and His law. The Spirit does not break our will, but renews it so that we desire to obey God from the heart. And I, I, I would have said a couple years ago, if you've ever lost your sense of taste, and assume that many of you haven't, but if you have ever lost the ability to taste things, and then you start to be able to taste those things again, there's a certain sweetness and and openness and excitement to food again that you once lost. What the Spirit does is, is He renews our spiritual appetite, our spiritual taste buds, so that we can taste what is truly sweet and what is actual death. Maybe you saw those challenges on YouTube where it's people eating like this insanely hot food and being like, I can't taste it. I can't taste it. That's who we are in the flesh. But in the spirit, we can taste what is true and good and pleasing, and we have a, an appetite for it. We want it. 
That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit renews our wills and our desire to obey. And this this desire to obey and pursuing after submission to Christ, it leads to a life that is truly pleasing to God. That's incredible. Richard Gaffin notes, those who possess and are animated by the mindset of the Spirit are those who do submit to God's law, and that in doing so, however imperfectly, they are pleasing to God as their delight is in the law of the Lord. What was impossible in our flesh, the Spirit makes possible within us. Even as imperfectly as it is, even though it is tarnished by sin in so many ways, it is still pleasing to God. The result of this way of life, of this mindset, is life and peace, both in this life and in the life to come. We can have life that is true life, not in submission to our sinful desires, doing the things that we wish we could not, doing the things that, we, that bring us death. And we have peace peace with God, and we can have genuine peace with one another. That is the work of the Spirit within us, applying what was accomplished by the Son. What the Spirit does is He takes Christ and applies Him. He puts Him within the believer, that the life of Christ would be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is what it means that we would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. That the one who perfectly obeyed and accomplished all that the law required, that life would be being worked in us and shown to the watching world. To fill out what Paul says here, and especially in Romans 8.1, for those for whom there is now no condemnation are those who are in Christ. And what it means to be in Christ is that it's to have Christ being worked in us. Us in Christ is Christ in us by the Spirit. This is the incredible impossible work of salvation that God has accomplished in his son and is being applied in our hearts by the spirit I hope these details are as precious and valuable to you as they are to me but there's a danger here I noted it earlier but there's a danger to take all these incredible truths and to say cool that was pretty neat to think about, Dan. Thanks for, thanks for that interesting explanation of that doctrine. I'll uh, tuck that away, and so at the Christmas party that I go to next week, I can, I can pull that out and explain this passage. That, that's going to make you a bad party guest. I, I'm going to say in 99% of your parties. The point is not to just add this to the shelf of things that we know but it's something that we need to work out in our lives. We need to fly. 
Just like those fear of light classes, the point is to act on those truths. So how should we live in light of the no condemnation the Son accomplished and the Spirit is applying? The difference I think that this makes is the mindset that you take into your life. That you would have a greater confidence and joy as you pursue obedience before your Father. Too many of us live in fear that our pursuit of holiness is still displeasing to God. Too many, live, too many of us live in bitterness that God takes no joy in us. Too many of us doubt the Father's love. We offer to God obedience that comes from begrudging duty because we doubt that our God could delight in us. That translates to the way that we, we relate to our boss. We work and work never to know, never to know whether we are doing a good job and, and we work begrudgingly or, or it works its way out in our parenting and the way that we hold out rules to our children expecting them to obey, but never being concerned about their heart because we don't think that God is concerned about our heart. Maybe that's how we tend to relate to our obedience. Or maybe we make it seem like it's irrelevant whether, God, uh, whether we obey God's law because we could never do it perfectly. Because it is the life of Christ in us, we have declared over us what, he, what God declared over Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. You've been adopted in Christ. He declares over you no condemnation, just as in Jesus there was no sin found. He is making you holy and pleasing in His sight by the work of the Spirit. And as imperfect as your, obe your obedience may be, it is pleasing because it is the fruit of the Spirit and the no condemnation accomplished in Christ. God gave us His Son and Spirit, accomplished and applied our salvation that we might be his beloved possession, his precious people, and that we would live in the joy and freedom of that salvation. We can confess it with our mouths, but do we live that way in our lives? Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live in peace. Amen. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the incredible work that you have accomplished in your Son and are working in us now by your Spirit. Our trying God, what joy it is Lord, it puts our fears to flight. At least it should. 
Lord, how, how often are we too busy to reflect on, on the good work that you have accomplished in your Son? How often are we so distracted by our phones, our news, our lives, that we do not consider the life of your Son? How many anxieties, how many fears, how many sadnesses would be cast away if only we gazed upon your Son? Lord, slow us. Slow us to consider who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, in this season in which we consider his coming, Lord, may we be reminded of why he came. But it is not for us to consume, but for us to be filled with Jesus. Father, and as we as we meditate upon our own obedience to you, as we seek to live before you, Lord, may we know the joy and delight of, of your spirit that is at work within us, producing life and peace. That our, that our lives can be pleasing to you. Lord, may that motivate us into deeper joyful obedience. Lord, we want to know you. And the, the deep things of, of what you've done in salvation, Lord, move us. Lord, move us into our, in our, into our weeks, Lord. We ask that you would strengthen us in these things and that we would make your name known to all the world, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.